Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. This is Cash, and I would like to dedicate that introduction to the fellow who wrote the very good article on us, but who said that our introduction was, uh, let's say, terrible. Less than stellar. Less than stellar. So uh, this goes out to you. Live from deep in the weeds at the CHI Center in Omaha, Nebraska, this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 227, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. We are back from Omaha. We had a great time. I didn't go. <laughs> Scott had a seminar on expertizing, which had some fantastic information, so listen and enjoy. So I'm going to get started. Uh, greetings, everybody. Thank you for showing up. Uh, this is, we're going to be discussing expertizing, how to become an expert, how to work with experts, when you use an expert, when you need an expert, when you don't need an expert. So how many people here are experts? <laughs> My experts are not raising their hands. <laughs> okay, so as time goes by, um, you're going to have questions. Please feel free to interrupt. Uh, if by the time somebody stops talking about how to determine a perf 10 from a perf 11, you may have forgotten your question. So please, as soon as you have a question, raise your hand. We're going to get kind of technical, but we're going to try to keep it very, very beginner level. Or not beginner level, but intermediate level. So feel free to interrupt. Uh, my name is Kenneth Braithus. I'm with the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center out of Nevada. We have Larry Lyons with the Philatelic Foundation. If you want to introduce yourself real quick. That's who I am. <laughs> I've been director since uh, uh, 1999, uh, since 20, uh, 2010. But I've been a uh, trustee of the Philatelic Foundation since 1999 and uh, serve on their board. Uh, I'm also the uh, chair of the expert committee. So, and we have Scott Murphy with professional stamp experts. And again, that's who I am. Um, I am the president of professional stamp experts and the senior expert there. And I've uh, been there since I've been in that position since 2012. And I worked as an expert for PSE starting in 2005. And Randy Shoemaker, who couldn't make it today, he wrote some. Uh, he wrote a little monograph. I will hand it out to people who want that. He also gave us some comments. Wayne Youngblood is hopefully going to be joining us shortly. He just finished a very, very nice uh, seminar on Los Alamitos. So he's going to be wandering in, and he'll be talking about the APEX. Also, Bill Crow, he contributed to the show. Um, Bill Crow, of course, runs Bill Crow Expertising. So, to get started, what we want to do is we want to talk about how things are expertized, what tools you can have in your hand, and how you should be addressing things for 
figuring out if a stamp is not only real, but today in today's market is more condition driven also. So you want to find out if a stamp is real and if it's reperfed and if it's regummed and if it's torn and if it's thin and things like that. So we have a hypothetical stamp, the famous 50 drachma greased magenta. And if you can come up front, I'd appreciate it. Up here. And so we're going to make pretend that it comes in with the submission form and a check for 30 bucks plus return postage. And basically, well, well since Wayne is here, why don't you introduce yourself real quick? Okay. Um, Wayne Youngblood, uh, been around for a long time. I, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I expertise primarily for American Philatelic Society and the occasional piece here and there for PSE. <laughs> so we have a stamp that comes in. It shows up on your desk. This is a stamp. Where do you start? What do you use? What's your hand on items? Where do you go? Who wants to start? <coughs> well, I'll start. Um, <clears throat> the first thing you, you want to do. The first thing you want to do is um, get an idea of what the catalog number one is. So if you don't are not familiar with Greece, you would get a catalog and uh, determine the catalog number. Um, then having, me personally not having much uh, knowledge about Greek stamps, uh, my examination would be basically for conditions. Um, assuming I had knowledge of what the perforations in the gum normally look like, I would base my examination on that. Is it hinged? Is it genuine? Uh, a lot of times re-gumming, uh, even if you don't know what the gum should look like, there are characteristics of regumming that would be evident, such as the perforation tips all gum-soaked, uh, things like that that would tell you that it's not original gum never hinged, but more than likely re-perforate or uh, regummed. Uh, the perforations should look uh, the same on all four sides uh, and consistent. They shouldn't wander up and down. And uh, unless that is something that is normal for the issue, which generally is not, especially for something this uh, like this, uh, are the colors as listed in the catalog. You just kind of go down the checklist and make sure that, that it agrees with what it should be in, as it's listed in the catalog. Um, as far as, uh, and then you want to examine it for faults, which means probably put it in lighter fluid or watermark fluid. Uh, observe it, see if there are any thin spots, um, creases, which would show up as dark spots when you examine it. Uh, Hold on for a second. How many people here have, know how to dip their stamps or have heard of the watermark fluid and things like that? Why don't you go ahead and go into that a little bit, because I see a lot of hands that didn't do that. Okay, watermark fluid uh, allows us to see watermarks in the paper. Uh, watermarks are a security feature. 
and they're uh, basically a, a thinning, a thin area of the paperwork generally in a design intentionally placed in the paper so that um, it's harder to counterfeit. And by <coughs> putting the stamp in a fluid, it allows the paper to become more transparent and allows us to see variations in the thickness of the paper. So in that sense, a water, and if you use a black, a black background, the watermark shows up as a dark area in whatever shape it's supposed to be. So by placing it face down in watermark fluid, uh, allows us to see a watermark, which also helps in identification of some stamps. Now, on the same point, if, it's, uh, if there's a thin area of the stamp, say somebody hinged it and they just ripped the hinge off and they took part of the paper with it, would show up darker just as a watermark area would. So it's useful to do that. If you crease a stamp, and it, it's easy to take a, a very inexpensive stamp, bend it in half, and then put it in watermark fluid and see what it looks like. You should see a, a dark line where the crease is because the papers of the fiber have broken, and now you can see through it. So um, it allows us to see faults, and when it's wet, so the next step is to, okay, so now it's wet, now we want to see it, look at it dry again. So you watch it as it dries, and any broken paper fibers, fibers that have been disturbed, such as from hinging or creasing, generally dry faster. Uh, we call it whitening up or flashing, and they kind of show up. And sometimes you'll find things that you didn't see initially when you looked at the stamp. So it's, it's basically a, a method for uh, helping us determine faults. The fluid doesn't balance the game? No. No, watermark fluid is designed to be uh, uh, inert when with the gum doesn't disturb it at all. That's why we don't use water. <laughs> um, obviously, if you're looking at a mint self-adhesive stamp, you wouldn't use lighter fluid because the self-adhesive gum is, uh, would soften the, the adhesive. That wouldn't be good. So um, on self-stick stamps, it's not recommended. And, uh, and also, there are some inks. If, if you have uh, fugitive inks, things that bleed in water, uh, the watermark fluid generally does not affect that either. So, um, but always pay attention to any notes that are in the catalog pertaining to cautionary notes things like you do things. But, you know, just a general kind of examination, identification, and then condition. That's basically what you're looking at. So Larry, you, Scott's handed the stamp to you, he had just nipped it. There's no thins and no creases. What's the next step? Well, I will just add one thing okay. to Scott. We only use rosinol fluid. I don't know if you would That's what it. I use, yes. okay. Uh, because we, Somebody has tested all the others and they just don't work yeah. well. What's it we called? Buy it by the Rosenol. case. What's it called? Rosenol. 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 It's lighter fluid. It's lighter fluid. It comes in a 12 ounce plastic container. You can order <coughs> it online. And last year I learned 
order it online a lot cheaper than buying it directly from the If company. you can find it because a lot of places can't carry it now because they don't want to carry cigarettes or cigarette lighters or lighter fluid. It's also a hazard to have 12 containers of it in your possession at one time. And somebody <laughs> might ask you why are you buying you know, 12 of these. If I can add one thing for you, it's the yellow bottle. Ronsonol issue or has a white bottle that they add some perfumes in it so that it doesn't stink. We don't know what that does to stamps. Okay. So you want to make sure you get the Ronsonol in the yellow bottle, the old-timey Ronsonol, yeah. not the new stuff. That I didn't realize this is the way you can find fins and, and creases. I thought you were doing microscope or something. Well, we got microscopes. I'm sure they'll come up to it. Another caution with the use of lighter fluid. It does contain naphtha, which is a carcinogen, so you want to make sure that you don't sit there and sniff it in a closed room. You want to have ventilation and, and all of the things that would be associated with that. Okay, at the Philatelic Foundation, we maintain a reference collection. 33 volumes of U.S. stamps and about two to 300 volumes of the world. So the first thing we would do is look in the Scott catalog and go to the reference collection and see if we actually have that particular stamp that we can compare it to. Let us assume you don't. Well, if we did, we would compare the paper, the colors, the ink. We'd be able to decide if it's the right colors and everything else. Um, yes. Where did you get your first big reference collection? <coughs> That's a leading question. The Luff collection? Yeah, you know? You know the story behind that? Uh, I think you told me at one point. <laughs> yeah, the Luff collection is actually owned by uh, Scott Publishing Company. Yes. And Hugh Clark, the, the owner of Scott Publishing, gave that to the foundation when they were founded as a gift. It contains forgeries, every forgery that could be found on any particular stamp, as well as multiple copies of the genuine stamps usually in poor condition because we don't need um, absolutely perfect stamps for expertizing. We can deal with a, a torn example. Um, we maintain perhaps the largest reference collection of uh, 1851 to 1857 um, three-cent stamps, uh, which Charles comes in and helps maintain in our office. Um, it goes all the way from plum to uh, pink, which with a hundred in between. <laughs> so anyway. Okay, so this is gonna go on a perf gauge to make sure it, it corresponds with the uh, catalog. What type of perf gauge is Whatever the designation, the, me the metallic perf gauge. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that would be for US stamps. There's also one for Canadian stamps. It's called, it's, uh, it was, Basically put out by a guy named Cusales, his last name is Cusales, K-I-U-S-A-L-A-S. Um, they are available on the secondary market, they no longer make them, but they are aluminum. It's uh, printed on aluminum and... Uh, Very stable that way. Yes, and, and they're, they're hard to find. You can expect to spend uh, $15 and up when you can, but there's a Canadian and a U.S. version. This obviously not being a U.S. stamp you would go to a general perforation gauge, mm -hmm. um, probably a multi-gauge, something that's sliding, that where you can get an accurate perforation gauge off of that. 
Um, one other thing we could check, uh, if we're checking to see if it's reperforated, is we may use the BSC 6000, divide the stamp, move the left to the right, check the person left to the right, check the top to the bottom, or even rotate one side around to check uh, the, the top. Um, Let's talk about the DSD for a second because it's a very expensive piece of equipment. Yes. That unfortunately only really the advertising companies can afford. And, what and can, the police. What, <coughs> what can they get that is VSC like? And I know that it's tough, but. I know you've mentioned that you think you could reproduce all of the things of the VSC. Well, about half of them. But it has like 19 different lamps in it. Yeah. Um, uh, we have a uh, UV room at the PF, and we have a, a UV lamp, not a handheld, it's a gooseneck one, where the bulb is about $400. So that's a good UV, UV lamp. But the VSC 6000 does UV on just the touch of a, of a button. Um, it also has uh, instead of, that's 365 uh, wavelength, but 312 would give you the low range UV. Uh, it also does UV from the back, so you can come through the, the stamp from the back with the UV. Um, you're able to look through the stamp. Um, you can, any individual can do that by holding it up to an art lamp <coughs> and looking through it. The benefit of the VSC 6000 is you're hooked up to a 30-inch monitor, so the stamp's coming up that big on your monitor. Uh, and when I backlight it, I can see natural things that happen between fiber as well as thins. So um, if the question was, is that natural or is it a thin, I may be able to magnify that um, way up. Um, let, me, let me address real quick. Um it is my opinion. Technology is advancing so much. I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't have PowerPoints inside of these meetings and, you know, just walk in, I plug in my computer and you guys can see pictures. That didn't happen 10 years ago. The VSC has literally an infinite number of UV settings. I mean, it, it almost is you can spin a dial and pick any UV wavelength. That is the benefit of the UV over what you could get on Amazon. The cool thing about Amazon, though, now is you're being able to get LED UV lights that you can, you're not going to get an infinite spectrum of wavelengths, but you can get 10 or 15 wavelengths. Yeah, Mark is holding one right there in his hand. That, that's got two, I believe. And, and this one's just 365. Yeah, okay. And so one of the things that you should really think about putting into your philatelic workstation is either a UV light or an assortment of UV lights. The bulbs, I think, cost like $15 right now. The cool thing about a U, uh, the um, VSC is it's in a nice box. So you would not nearly, <laughs> well, yeah. with, a video, with a video feed. Yeah. yeah. Well, the video feed is easy now. For $30, yeah. you can get a video camera to point at anything. It weighs a couple hundred pounds. So but nobody's yeah, walking it, off with it or putting it in their pocket. Oh, uh, no. well, just so you, a VSC costs $100,000? $150,000. $150,000. So 
I don't know how many of you are going to go out there and buy one immediately. You can get an older refurbished model for about seventy-eight to ninety thousand dollars. Yeah. So what we're doing here is we're saying that there are alternatives. They are not nearly as good, but they are alternatives. If you wanted to go into the expertising business, it's tough. But if you want to expertise your own stamps, you can see stuff like this. One thing is different. Because I'm hooked up to the monitor, so I can save any image to a flash drive, and then I can take my flash drive, put it into my computer, and send it to the submitter and say, here's, here's what I'm seeing, because maybe a well-known auction house, <laughs> and they didn't see it, but I can show them an image they can't refute. Yeah, we have an older one where you actually have to take a screen capture of it and then move it physically over to the computer. But now, I'm, I'm, connected, I'm connected to a stereo microscope, which is another $30,000 piece of equipment. Oh, well, let's talk about those, too, because there are cheaper ones that you know, fill with well, okay. Hold on. I, just back to the where you said you could flip the size to compare the perforations. Right. If you want to do that at home, take a nice high-resolution scan of your stamp and then just go and Photoshop and switch it. It's, sure. it's a way to do the same same type of operation at home for not a lot of home, uh, not a lot of money. The stereo microscope has a Leica camera attached to the top, which is connected to the monitor, and it the VSC 6000 will take me up to 166 magnification, and the stereo microscope will extend that all the way to 1800, which would mean I could look at one fiber in the stamp. <laughs> if I needed to, to see if it followed all the way through and nobody had spliced it back together. Yeah, yes. question. You do all this great stuff and then you send the guy a certificate. What's happening to all the information? Are you keeping a file on that particular stamp that if somebody wants to come in and say, I saw that stamp and I think there's a rip and you say it's a fold, you can come back and pull it out or is it all just Good question. deleted? I store everything under the certificate number. So if you can find the item, the certificate, that's the name of the, of the file. So I, you can go back into the flash drives and I have so thousands it's, it's of not, images. Now to your own line, it's wonderful because I use that for research. Right. But if I go there and I look at a stamp and I say, you say something, and just by looking at that scan <coughs> online, I think there's something else that's going on. You may have to ask at that point. Who do because I ask? we don't uh, ask the PF to provide I don't more information. Own it. I don't own it, but somebody else owns it. Can Sometimes we'll go it? back to the worksheet and we'll let you know what was stated there. Okay, great. How long has this been going on? How many years? How many years has? How did you kept all the information? Go back five years, ten years? hundred years. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, the BSC 6000 oh. has only about been about three or four years. Okay, so something in 2015 might not be there. Yes. Okay, great, thank you. Now, is that explanation given to the person certifying the stamp? Say, I sent you a stamp. The explanation? All the if explanation we think of we followed the fibers through and these were Yeah, this is really all that. If really we think the opinion, the opinion may be it has a thin. Mm -hmm. We think you should be able to see that. So we're only going to say that. But if we think something is wrong with the stamp that you cannot see, like it's reperforated at the right end, we're thinking, they're not going to be able to see that, that the holes on one side are not the same size and shape as the other side. We may 
be able to show you the. Uh, You'll make a note of it or show a. Image. Show an image. Right. Another another thing would be light hinge marks are sometimes not really obvious, especially in you know show conditions. Whereas we're looking at it in a darkened room with a single desk lamp generally or magnification where we can control the light condition optimally so that we uh, have uh, good vision on and can detect uh, sometimes hard to see uh, hinge marks. So a lot of times when they're lightly hinged like that, we'll communicate with the, the submitter where we think it's hinged. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about the back of the stamp. I was going to have Wayne address it this time. Let's do it. Oh, okay. okay. So, you already looked for thins, you already looked at the UV, what are you going to look at next? Well, and, and my situation is a little bit different uh, in that unless I'm actually at APS headquarters, I don't get to use all their toys and everything. Most of what I'm doing, I'm doing out of my home. Uh, so I've set up my laboratory <laughs> at home. So, so, first of all, Anything that comes to me from the APS or, or from these guys is going to have a worksheet with it. And it's, if somebody's seen it before me, it's going to have what they've already uh, noted on the stamp, whether you know, it's a reperforating things or anything like this. However, uh, those of us who, who do this at home, or, or hopefully other places too, I don't look at that worksheet. I don't want to know what anybody else has seen before me. I want to be able to arrive at my conclusions independently. So at least initially that worksheet goes off to the side and then basically the, the uh, process is much the same as these guys have already said um, so we were you were now you were what stage were you turning it over looking at the back okay so turning it over looking at the back uh, again I don't have a VSC at home obviously uh, but I do have uh, high magnification uh, a number of different glasses of different magnification I've got a microscope I've got two large uh, computer screens, uh, you know, ultraviolet lights, uh, all these types of things. So I'm going to be looking at it um, both under natural light, full spectrum light. Uh, if there's a, a, seeing something that doesn't seem quite right, I'm going to take it, you know, a microscopic image of it and blow it up on my screens. I can compare the two screens, you know, what I'm seeing. Also, if I have a, another example uh, to compare it to. Um, and depending on the stamp and what I see or don't see depends on how I'm going to proceed from there and, and how detailed I'm going to get. And, and to some extent the value of the stamp also makes a difference. If I'm looking at a stamp the catalog is you know, $10.50, I'm not going to spend the same amount of time on it in terms of trying to find uh, a thin or a crease, and most of those things are self-apparent anyway, as I would on a stamp that catalogs $1,500 or $2,000 or whatever, and most of those aren't isn't as big of a deal, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, but some of the things that, that, that you can look for, and some of these things that you can look for at home too, if you have a good ultraviolet light, uh, both long wave and short wave, and, and a decent one is going to probably cost you at least a couple hundred dollars or so, but I, I feel it would pay for itself in no time at all. Uh, you know, long wave in particular is great for looking uh, for paper faults. You know, you can you can have a stamp that has a filled-in thin, and typically what's happened is if a stamp has been thinned badly, um, those guys who want to take your money uh, have found nice ways of, of macerating uh, 
similar type of paper and even if they're able to match most of the characteristics and fill in that thin so that the naked eye can't see it very well, uh, they're not going to match all the, the characteristics of the paper. You know, first of all, the paper fibers are going to be different. You're going to find breaks there and under magnification you should be able to see that. But more often than not, first thing I'll do is I'll turn on the long wave ultraviolet light because it will absolutely react differently than the native paper and the stamp itself. It's going to stand out with a sore thumb. So there's some of those kinds of things that uh, uh, take care of themselves very, very quickly and easily. If I can... What magnification do you usually look at? Is it usually like 30x, 50x? Well, and again, it depends on what I'm looking for. Um, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll start out, I'll, I'll use multiple on a single stamp, but I'll usually start out at 10 power, go 15, 20, 30, uh, and then if I think I need to go farther, then I'll start getting into the microscope. But most, you know, there are some things, the reason I don't start out really magnifying is that there are some things that you can see under 10 power that by the time you get to a higher magnification you almost can't see because you're too close to the problem and, and vice versa. And so I, I use, you know, I use multiple magnifications. Um, I keep with me, you know, at all times, uh, 15 power glass in my pocket. I actually, I've got 30 power in there too. But those, those, those go with me everywhere all the time. Um, but but uh, it's good to have a good range of so those are usually the areas you're looking at. Do you get much above 100 unless you're looking at fibers and following them? Well, I, I, again, I do if I'm looking, again, looking for paper fibers. Sometimes on very expensive stamps, I'm looking for painted in details, you know, where you've had a scuff or some other type of damage and uh, somebody's tried to repair it so you don't notice it. Um, occasionally I'll use the higher magnifications on, on some reproof jobs, although it's not necessary on most of them. Um, Again, it depends on what you're looking for. If I'm uh, examining a color omitted error, um, uh, particularly on some of the gravure stamps, where and without going into the whole thing, but a lot of times there's tiny traces of those left. I'm I'm going to magnify the heck out of that. So any trace of that, and of course, it becomes a freak. It's no longer an error. So I want to make absolutely sure there's no trace of that color there. The largest group of questions from the seminar was on dipping stamps. So let's get a bit more into the weeds with stamp dipping. So, Scott, uh, everybody you just listened to it, um, why don't we get much more specific into dipping stamps? Why do you do it? How do you do it? And what does everything look like? Looks wet. Yes. Well, um, there are two primary reasons for dipping a stamp. The first one being fairly obvious in that you need to see what the watermark is on the stamp to determine its identification so that is the first reason why we like to dip a stamp and what do those watermarks look like they are generally in the shape of whatever the paper maker has decided whatever design or character caricature or uh, representation that the watermark or that that the uh, paper maker has decided to put into the paper and usually it's at the request of the person requesting the paper so, like, if it was for the British government, it would have something to do with that. Um, and for an example, Great Britain, uh, you see a lot of uh, CA or C of A. That's for stands for Crown Agents, and they're the ones that ordered the paper for the post. Um, for the United States, you'll see USPS for the United States Postal Service. 
uh, USIR for United States Internal Revenue. I think, so it, it has to do a lot with um, who's ordering the paper. Yeah, but I, me and Tom were talking about this earlier about uh, double-line watermarks and single-line watermarks looking significantly different when you're dipping them. And not just the fact that there was an extra, you know, double line is double line, but the actual appearance of how they look when they're dipped. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the layouts change because the, the single line watermarks, they, they're a repeating pattern in vertical lines or vertical columns, I guess you could say, if they're turned on their side. Um but the single lines, the lines are offset, so you could read USPS, but you could also read it like diagonally down, because each line is offset from the one below it. Whereas on the double line watermark, you have they the letters actually line up vertically and horizontally, and they're also much easier to see. Well, the light lines on the double line watermark are larger. So you well, generally have more watermark just, on each stamp. Not just the larger lines, but the lettering itself is actually larger. Yes. Because that's one of the biggest problems with some single lines is you can only get, in some instances, one part of one letter on a stamp. Yeah, that not, can even be, a, not even a whole letter. That can be a problem, and which is why it takes some practice looking for these watermarks. Well, I think that's one of the major problems is be, and why people are dissuaded from collecting Washington Franklins is that S might just be the little tick of the edge of the S, and it might be kind of blurry and hard to see. And the rest of it looks like it's never uh, no, no watermark. Well, I think even worse is the vertical line of like the U or the P. So you just have a little tiny straight line. It's like, is that a watermark? Is it just an anomaly in the paper? Is Well, one of the things I did when I started collecting is since I had trouble seeing the single line watermarks, I insisted that I had to have at least two-thirds of a letter on the stamp that I could see before it was a candidate for me to buy. And so I would sit, I would take my fluid to the show and I would dip a stamp before I bought it to make sure that it met my criteria to be put in my collection. That's pretty smart. I like that. I like what that kind a lot. of uh, watermark fluid do you use? Well, there's there's commercial watermark fluid. In the beginning, they used things like benzene that wouldn't react with the gum. Uh, today, they make a commercial watermark fluid. Um, it's available. It is fairly expensive, and it evaporates extremely fast. You're talking about clarity. Clarity, yes. Um, but most dealers and expertizing services use Ronsonol lighter fluid. Uh, lighter fluid is also non-reactive with uh, the adhesive on stamps. And uh, we, use, we use the yellow bottle Ronsonol because the formula uh, over time has not shown any adverse effects on the stamps. Yeah, if I can add to that, Ronsonol has a white bottle. You... You should avoid it. It might not be anything, but they add perfumes and they add a slowing agent to it. And we don't know what that does to stamps. And we probably won't know for 15 years. But so, the yellow nobody one, likes pretty smelling stamps. Exactly. So, yeah. So we use just we like regular them to smell like gas. <laughs> <laughs> we so we use just regular Ronsonol fluid. Now caution with using lighter fluid. 
First of all, it's flammable. So a ventilated room is good. Second of all, you don't want to snort the stuff. Uh, it does contain naphtha, which causes cancer. And so small amounts are recommended, small amounts in ventilation, and you should be fine. Just make sure you don't have enough ventilation that it blows your stamps off the desk. Yeah. <laughs> so well, in I, addition to watermarks, then, the other thing we obviously look for are creases and tears and things. What do those look like? And especially well, talk about flashing. First, let me let me comment on why we prefer Ronsonol lighter fluid over Clarity watermark fluid when we're looking for things like uh, faults. And that is because the Clarity watermark fluid evaporates extremely quickly, and some of the indications that we look for occur when, as the fluid dries. And so by lengthening the drying period, we can watch as the fluid evaporates, and we can catch those characteristics a lot more easily. One thing I also notice about Clarity is that the um, contrast is not as high with Clarity as it is with Ronsonol. In some, in a lot of cases, yes. Well, there goes Clarity as one of our sponsors. <laughs> yes, but we just picked up Ronsonol. <laughs> so, Tom, when you watermark a stamp, what does it look like? What does the watermark look like besides in whatever shape it's supposed to be? How does it appear? The watermark on a stamp will appear actually darker because the stamp itself is thinner in that area. And why is it looks darker? Because you do it against a black background. Right. We do it against a black. Put it. We use the back of a black card. People use um, trays, the, the black dipping plastic, trays. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've heard some people do is they'll like load that thing up with fluid and just drop the whole stamp in like a puddle. And I'm like, that just seems like a way too much. Yeah. Well, I I know at least one expert who had um, who swears by a black glass watermark tray, and uh, he puts the fluid in it like that, and he'll drop the stamp in it, and then once he pulls the stamp out. He covers the tray so that it reduces Doesn't the evaporation uh, in the tray. And he'll sit there and he'll use the same tray. with the. He'll not have to add watermark fluid to it maybe once every hour and a half or two hours. So it, it significantly slows the rate of evaporation. And then he's got the stamp to work with after he's looked at it in the puddle. Will, you also brought up a really big, important part of dipping a stamp also is he drops the stamp in. He drops a stamp in and then watches the fluid get into the stamp. Yes. He doesn't drop 10 stamps in and then check the watermark. I, and I used to do this. I drop a bunch of stamps in and then try to check the watermark. Once these stamps get inundated with watermark fluid or uh, lighter fluid, you just made your job five times harder. Yeah, you know, because you want to watch it as the Ronsonol soaks into the stamp, and then you want to watch it as it evaporates out of the stamp. You want to watch that. Right. This is not just dipping, soaking, and identifying. This is the whole process. Uh, a, a good thing is if you take a stamp and you want to, say it's a used stamp, you want to soak the hinge remnants off the back of it. You slide it into the water, usually you slide it in edge first. Well, with lighter fluid, you want to 
set the stamp on the surface of the watermark fluid and watch the fluid soak in. Occasionally, if there's a pinhole in the stamp, you'll see a puddle form in an area of the stamp not near the edge, and that'll tell you exactly where the pinhole is. Or the thin, yeah. Or if it's a thin that's that's deep enough into the paper fibers, yeah. it will show. But my point was, when I asked Tom, is if you get a thin spot, it's going to look like a watermark. It's going to look like a darker spot in the stamp. That is true. And it's going to probably have a irregular shape around. It could be round, square, elongated. It could be any shape at all, but it's not going to be the watermark. And so that's another thing you're looking for as the stamp is wet. It's not like some of the eBay things where you have toast that looks like Jesus. You know, you won't have a the thin that looks like Jesus's face won't give you more value. <laughs> right. Sorry. Right. But or they can't be any shape. Sorry, did you see the one? Uh, they just so, sold a piece of toast, and I think it went for like $400. They had Barack Obama's face on it. A Barack Obama piece of toast for 500 bucks. Uh, okay. What? So, uh, <clears throat> so uh, how about creases? We uh, cr- A crease does not look the same as a watermark. A well, thin just, will, but a crease will not. Well, I was just going to say about, a crease um, can. Well. about applying the fluid. One thing I found is that if I apply the watermark fluid the same way every time for every stamp, um, when I have a situation where a stamp has been regummed, I will sometimes notice that the, that the fluid soaks into the stamp differently oh, yeah. than all the other stamps. Which, again, is, is why you watch it when it's soaking up the fluid, and then you want to watch it while it's drying. I had an 1869 12-cent stamp, the uh, Green Adriatic, and it had a crease in it, and the person had pressed the paper to press out the crease. And I dipped this stamp in the watermark fluid, and usually, you know, when you watch it, it sort of just goes, and then covers the stamp. This one here, it didn't soak up the watermark fluid for like half a minute, it was just incredible. And you go, wow, why is this stamp not soaking up any watermark fluid? And it was because it was so squished in some sort right. of hydraulic press to try to get rid of the crease. Right. The, the, but they totally destroyed the, the fibers. Fi- the fibers were so compressed that it had difficulty absorbing the fluid. Yeah. So that's that's a good point. That's a That's technically a repair. Uh, although if if the crease is tiny enough and you don't press it quite that hard, sometimes you can uh, make it unnoticeable. Yeah. Now, Tom, you want to talk about creases? Sure. Okay. And flashing. I want to get into the what, flashing. What do what do creases look like when they're wet? Uh, depends on how bad the crease is. Okay. Let's sometimes if if a crease is really deep or really like the paper was really heavily folded a crease can dip dark just like a watermark or a thin so it looks like a black line that somebody drew yeah, on really, the stamp yeah really really dark line usually creases are usually in straight lines you know cuz it's you know vertical horizontal diagonal wherever the stamp was folded but then as they dry because the paper fibers are broken essentially in that area it actually starts to turn whiter than the paper 
Well, it turns back it to the dries paper color. faster. It dries faster, so it, you see it, it goes from a, a dark line to a, a like a white line while the rest of the stamp's drying, and it's because all the, the fluid is evaporating out of that area at a much higher or much faster rate. Right, and, and we, we call, call that, that whiting up. Or flashing. flashing. Or flashing. Yeah, because it happens and just in a fraction of a second, right? Well, uh, no, well, with the with the lighter fluid, it actually is long enough. With the with the clarity watermark fluid, yes, it can be just a fraction of a second, and it's there and it's gone. Which is the problem. Which right. is which is the problem, and with the lighter fluid, it, it's a lot slower process, so it's much more uh, apparent. And also on the severity of the creases, if Sometimes you can dip a stamp and the crease won't dip dark. Yes. You know, it, you won't get the dark line. Or if it's sometimes if it's been pressed, you may not get the line, but you'll still get a line. You'll still get the flashing as it dries. Um, because no matter how much you press it, the fibers are still broken. Right. And some some instances you can actually get it where if it's a super light crease almost the entire stamp will be dried and you'll get the white at the very, very end almost when it's dry. And that's usually something that's very lightly into the paper and maybe only a few fibers are broken. Right. Also with thins, obviously thinning takes away some of the paper and therefore the fibers are broken in the area of the thin. So a lot of times when you see a thin, when you're watching the fluid dry, you'll see the area of the thin will flash. Uh, or sometimes if there's a, a, we call it a laminated thin, but that's basically it's a thin with a flap on it because the paper's not really gone. It's just been kind of shaved and it's got a flap. Those really flash because you, the, the air gets underneath that flap. Even though you can't see it, it'll still get under there and it'll just light up like a Christmas tree. And you got to be careful with those, too, because you can look at those and then look at the paper under magnification when it's dry and go, I don't see anything there. And you got to sometimes kind of look for the edge, which side of which yeah. area of that. Well, sometimes is, then you're going to re-wet it yeah. with a fluid. And then instead of just watching it as it dries, then you want to put it under magnification as it dries to see where that edge is so that you can discern it. And that can go two ways. You can get a laminated thin or a laminated tear. Yes. Where it can actually, it's, you know, it starts at the fourth perf hole and ends at the second perf hole. But you can actually separate the layers completely and, and see the, how the tear goes through almost at, a, at, a, at an angle. Yeah. So dipping is very important and can be very educational when you look at your stamps. Unfortunately, sometimes the education isn't what you want to see. <laughs> Lloyd um Lloyd brought me a stamp today. It was um 30 30 cent pictorial, I think. And he said, "I'm not real familiar with grills. Can you check this for me real quick?" So I looked at the front and said, "Okay, looks fine." I looked at the back. It's got a hinge over the grill. I'm like, Hmm, okay. So I dipped it real fast, and a white line showed up in the hinge. And I'm like, that's not normal. <laughs> so I let it dry, and I'm looking at it, and it's like it kind of extended out a little past the hinge. So I flipped it over, and I looked at it again and go... An internal tear? And I put my glass on, and as soon as I put my glass on it, I could see that the entire thing 
was an internal tear through the whole width of the grill across the stamp. Now, if I didn't put my glass on the front, I probably wouldn't have seen it because of the way it was it was kind of laminated like we were talking about. But it was also in the grill, so you have that the paper's more broken anyway. So there's a caution, um, especially if you if you collect used stamps. If there's a hinge on the back, it can be hiding things. It can be it can be repairing, holding together a a, t- a tear. It can be hiding a thin. Oh, I'd, uh, I'd go further than that. I'll probably half the repairs that I see are just hinges covering something up. Right, right. And, you know, I, I've repaired stamps that I own, knowing that full well that they're repaired, just by placing a hinge to close a tear or something like that. Yeah, just like to that. hold it together. Uh, I don't generally cover up thins, but hol- holding a tear together uh, is definitely yeah. not something that I would feel uncomfortable uh, having done. Um, I mean, I'm not changing the stamp. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm just trying to keep it from getting trying to bigger. Prevent, trying to prevent further damage. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you buy a stamp or a collection and you take stamps out of the collection and they're used, I would just go ahead and soak them. Don't try to remove the hinge or any hinges uh, on the back of the stamp. Just soak them off. Just soak them off. Yeah. They will just float free. Yep. Because uh, some hinges will peel, but some hinge, a lot of hinges will not. Yeah. And so I would just I would just give us a, a short water bath and let all the hinges soak free uh, before I examine the stamp and decide whether I want to keep it or not. Well, so hopefully we answered some questions that uh, have come up about dipping in a little more detail. Uh, if you have questions, you can always email us and ask more. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 228. This was Tom. This was Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.